we were all gathered in a chapel, and it's just that eerie feeling, you know, after a lot of destruction and things that you kind of, kind of in your mind are trying to deal with. And um, so the physical plant head man was there, I noticed, and he was sitting on the podium, and he walked up to the podium, and, and he picked up a chainsaw, and he sat it there, and he cranked it up, and he revved it up, and then he cut it off, and he said, that Ladies and gentlemen, is a chainsaw. And he says, we're going to close school tomorrow and we're going on a mission. We're going on Operation We Go. Do you get it? We Go. Not Hugo, We Go. And so the school was, was uh, shut down for the day. We all divided up into groups and we went out into the areas of rural South Carolina where there were many, uh, much, much damage and um, at one point, I just looked up and I thought, this is just way too overwhelming. I mean, I don't know how anybody could ever clean up after this mess. Um, the thing that I was thinking about this week when it comes to that story is when we look at the book of First John, John is trying to clean up after the storm of false teachers. And even that echoes back to the storm of the fall. It's all connected, right? The storm of these false teachers, the storm of the fall, it's all connected. And he is taking a chainsaw. And he is cleaning up. He is cutting into our hearts. He is, is revealing where... Uh, where sin is, where corruption is, where wrong thinking is, where, where we need assurance. And he's using that same chainsaw as an instrument of mercy. So I'll ask you today, where is your walk with Christ? Do you consider that question often? Just regularly? Or maybe not at all? So the purpose of John's letter, again, is found in 5.13. I write these things to you who believe, notice, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. He is asking, where are you? Will you think about that? It is a matter of assurance. And so today... John is going to take us there. He is going to stick that chainsaw of this letter into our hearts. He's going to do some cleaning up. Then he'll leave us with the solve of grace to rest secure in Jesus Christ as we consider the first of the, taste of, uh, the test of faith that he brings up. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word it is so, so incredible. It is so, so joyous. I pray that it would bring great thought into our hearts and at the same time, great grace and joy as we look at this and as we think about it, as we consider it. May your Spirit guide and direct us and seal us for glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 1 John 2, and again, I think I'm going to read 1 uh, through 6. Let's begin at verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him. 
if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. And so as we see here, John has jumped right into his letter after his introduction, and he has begun to unpack for us the issues concerning erroneous views of sin that the false teachers were propagating and actually left and left the church with. Last week, we, he brought to us And understanding that we are sinners by nature. That's who we are. We're sinners by nature. Secondly, he pointed out that we are sinners by conduct. That's that's what we do. And so this brings us to the place of needing the mercy of the gospel. Not just in salvation, but the gospel also in everyday life. So the gospel is God's remedy for not only salvation, but the ongoing struggles with sin. And Christ's propitiatory death on the cross and His advocacy before the throne of God is our uh, starting point. It is the centrality of, of redemption. It points us to God's love for us. And in and through the gospel then, as we live our lives and we have faith in Him, we come and we confess our sins on the basis of His righteousness alone. That's what we do here every week. We remind ourselves that we are in need of the gospel as we confess our sins. So just um, to state it differently in a way that it may be clear, when John is speaking to his beloved children here, he is imploring them to be wholeheartedly devoted to God. He says, don't sin. That's why Jesus came. To save you from your sin. Not to allow you to continue to indulge or wallow in it. So don't sin. And then he says here, but if anyone does sin... Look to God's provision found only in Jesus Christ. As the author of Hebrews says, because Jesus is the permanent high priest, He is able to save. Now get this word to the uttermost. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. And that's just what John is saying here. He is our advocate. He is our our propitiation. So with that in mind, with those foundational elements in mind today, as as we come to verse 3, John introduces his main theme of assurance for the gospel believer through his often repeated phrase, by this we know. He says it over and over again. By this we know. Now comes the first test by which we can know whether, in spite of our failures, we are in a relationship with God. How do we know? How do we know? The ground of assurance John presents to us is this. Our obedience to Christ's commands. Look again at verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. This is so often spoken of as the moral test of genuine belief. 
Whoever obeys Christ out of a genuine love for God finds in that very obedience the grounds for assurance that he is genuinely in Christ. In other words, both to know and to love him. follows this by saying in 15.10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So one of the many aspects of following Jesus means striving to be like Him, as He has, has always obeyed His Father and our Father. Now, we could probably discuss many other things about why we need the commandments of God. But another thought comes to my mind here, as, or came to my mind as I was studying this text, and, and that is this, what about grace? What about grace? This sounds awful ungracious, doesn't it? When you read it just on the surface, it just sounds awful ungracious. Well, we've seen a glimpse already in the answer and the need for God's commandments we just looked at. But let's look a little closer because it's important to understand just how the law of God coexists with the grace of God. In, in truth, I found no one better to help me think through this. Because it's this, this, this is kind of war that always goes on in my heart. What, I need to obey, but I need grace. And there's uh, just this kind of wrestling with. And one of the persons that I've found to help me think through that the best is Brian Chapel former president of Covenant Seminary and current pastor at Grace Pres in Peoria. He articulates it in a, in a very understandable way, a biblical way, um, in answering this question, how does grace, or does grace, I should say, undercut the law of God? So we must begin by understanding that His law and grace are not Polar opposites pulling against one another. That's not how it is. That's sometimes how people, again, read it as we read the Scripture and we as we try to interpret different and various nuances that are revealed to us. But on the contrary, it is grace that allows us to fulfill the requirements of the law. Let me say that again. It is grace that allows us to fulfill the requirements of the law. So if we think of law in terms of what we have to do to make God happy, then we do not really understand the law because that's not what it's about. It's not about trying to make God happy. No, the law, and understand this, the law is the, is the expression of the character and care of God. It's an expression of the character and care of God. So when we understand then that the law is the right and the true and actually safe path that He has given us to glorify and enjoy Him, then what grace is actually doing is not freeing me to be free from sin, but freeing me from sin. I've already said that. Again, highlights in that first section. It actually helps us to understand God's desire for our lives and to walk in it. If this is indeed a reflection of His character and care, then grace is not earned by obeying the law. But when and because grace is extended toward me, my desire then is to walk with Him. The beauty and the goodness of who He is is reflected not only in the grace of God, but His beauty and glory and wonder is also reflected in His law. 
So when we see that the law is indeed reflecting his heart, and his grace toward me actually then compels me to follow him. To follow him. And then what we see is almost a great exchange here as well. as a great exchange in our salvation. A great exchange in our lives. We see that he is working in us to walk in the same way that he walked. It becomes fuel for the Christian life. So, so look again at John um, He implores us, by this we will know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same ways in which He walked. And grace then becomes the fuel for that. So John is not saying, he is not saying at all that our merits earn God's love. That would be legalism. He has already established that Christ. Uh, propitiating sacrifice as the basis of our salvation is settled. And he is saying that those who have God's love will then in turn show devotion to Him. So if we have been truly redeemed by Jesus, then our hearts are turned toward Jesus. Then we will have a devotion to Him. We can also see that John is not obviously referring here to faultless obedience. He has already alluded in verse 1-8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And what he is referring to here is a new trajectory of our life that springs from a profound transformation of having been redeemed and born again. Our heart's desire then is this. I love you, Lord. Out of grace, change my heart. I want to follow you. I want to be obedient. That's the way we're walking. This is evidence of a transformed life by Him. And it gives us critical assurance of being united to Him. As our obedience does not again gain love, but it evidences it. And that then contributes to our assurance. So do you see why this teaching for us is so crucial? Do you see why we need this understanding? Why we need John's letter to push us in this? Our final thought then of the text brings us to the natural question of what does this look like? How how do we apply this? In other words, what does heart obedience look like? That's our third thought here. What does heart obedience look like? In order to understand this fully, we need to begin with a reality that that stares us in the face here in the text. If you look kind of in the center here between the text here, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. His point is this. If you claim to know God, if you profess Christ, if you say, I know Him, but your life is not changed by knowing Him. That's a certain sign that you may not know the Lord. Lincoln Duncan puts it this way. He doesn't say that the problem is that you're all caught up with truth, that you've got all this head knowledge, but you have no heart knowledge. Isn't it interesting that he says there in verse 4, the one who says, I know God, but does not live that way, the truth is not in him? He doesn't say he has the truth, but he hasn't put it into practice. 
He doesn't say. He has head knowledge, but he doesn't have heart knowledge. He says he has no truth. Because the truth of God turns your world upside down. Once you have had that truth, it fills you with a fire of rapture and of love for the living God. It changes everything. That truth always leads to love. It always leads to obedience. It always leads to a transformed life. And so when that transformed life is not there, then you can be certain that that person has never had the truth. He's never met God. He's never met the Lord Jesus Christ who is the way and the truth and the life. There is no knowledge of God that does not also lead to the keeping of His commandments. You see this stressed in Romans 5, in Romans 8, in Ephesians 2, in James 2, along with many other passages. There is no knowledge of God that does not also lead to a keeping of His commandments. Again, the issue is that when a person is indifferent to the law of God, but yet they say at the same time, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are deceiving themselves. So the first thing to recognize is that if you are here and you are indifferent toward the Lord and His commandments, which point to His character, they point to His care, the free offer of the gospel is for you. It's for you. The Father has given you Christ who died for your sins that you may have life and be reunited to God through Christ. So what does that look like on a practical level? Let me tell you what that looks like. I've shared a little bit of my testimony before. I was 19 years old when I came to the Lord. And um, I, I I I was a reprobate. I'm just telling you. I was a mess. I thought wrong. I lived wrong. I had all sorts of quirky sort of uh, cultural ideas uh, of what was good and what was right and what was wrong. Um, and and I, just, I just lived that way. I mean, I could go into all sorts of examples with that. Um, you know, one example would be, and I think I've told this story before, when I, when I finally was saved and then a couple years later I was in Bible college, uh, you know, God's still working in my heart. It's not like I changed overnight. And that's some of the issue that you have to know here is that it's, it's a process. It's a sanctification process. My justif- justification is sure, but my sanctification is an ongoing aspect of, of the work of God. I was sitting in Bible college with... Um, a friend at lunch, and I had observed his girlfriend the day before having lunch with another guy. And so I looked at him, and I said, hey, did you guys break up? And he says, no. And I said, well, why is that guy having lunch with your girlfriend? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, in my world, they're going to bed together tonight. And he looked at me, and he said, what's wrong with you? And it was a slap in the face. I went, what is wrong with me? Why do I think that way? It's because of the culture I grew up in. God changed my heart on those views. Changed my heart on those things. He worked in me to, to, to desire Him. And, and the, the picture that you have to have here is, is that, again, 
the idea is, is that I'm going in a direction. I'm going toward Him. You may struggle with a certain sin and wrestle with that thing and go, Lord, am I a believer? I have. But then you look and you say, is my life going in a direction of following Christ and knowing Him? Yeah, it is. I go to church and I'm with the people. And that's what I did when I first became a believer. I mean, you know, I went to a, 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 a fairly large Baptist church is what I was saved in. And, and I know I've told this before, but, you know, I just wanted to be around the people of God. And so I joined and, you know, an all adult choir that most people were 30 years. I mean, they were probably a little younger than that. But to me, it seemed like they were 100 years old and older. But I wanted to be around them. I wanted to sing the songs of the Lord. I wanted to learn. Do you see? I was still struggling with sin. But the Lord had me and I was going. That's the point that He's making. Are you going? Are you walking in that direction? If you're not here today, then please reach out to me, one of our officers. If you're a young person, talk to your family, talk to AJ. You need to be honest and have the, this chainsaw rip up your heart and look at it for real. Secondly, for those of you who believe, you might lack assurance. You may be saying, like I said just a few moments ago, boy, I wrestle with this sin. You know, repent. Repent and turn and abide in Christ. Ferguson notes that in a nutshell, abiding in Christ means allowing His Word to fill our minds, to direct our wills, to transform our affections. In other words, our relationship to Christ is intimately connected to what we do with the Word of God. Then as Christ's Word dwells in us and the Spirit fills us, we will begin to walk in His ways. Or as it says in this passage, live with Jesus. And, and I think that's the issue. Is what it looks like to abide. What it looks like to walk in His ways is to, to, is to follow Him as a disciple. To follow Him in the things He's called us to. You know, church attendance. Uh, being in community. Growing together. Uh, reading our Bibles. And that doesn't mean you have to... You know, I've had a, a discussion with a brother recently. It doesn't mean you have to read your Bible through the year. Most people here don't. Some of you have jumped on that and, and you're doing it and it's a wonderful thing. If you just can read a paragraph a day and love the Lord and say, Father, I just want to know you better. And my mind right now won't, won't allow me to do more than that. Then do that. He'll grow it. He will. He'll take this little mustard seed and turn it into a glorious, glorious plant. That's what He promises to do. Think of it this way. What commandments did Jesus keep? Have you ever thought about that? What commandments did Jesus keep? All of them. Right? All of them. Do we know them? The commands that He asked us to keep, do we know them? Do we understand that there in the commandments are not just thou shalt not? Because so many times I think we, as, as, as a reflection of the culture only, it's a reflection of the culture, the culture reflecting itself in the church. We look at it like thou shalt not. But there's all these thou shalt's in there as well. 
Kevin D. Young in his book on the Ten Commandments says, By Jewish tradition, there are 613 laws in the Pentateuch. They all matter. All 613 of them, they all matter. Why? Because they teach us something about the love for God and neighbor. The uh, 613 can be summarized by the Ten Commandments. Which can in turn be summarized by two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see how the Ten Commandments are divided up into those two levels? Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. Why would we love our neighbor? Why does that matter? Why does a working out of that matter so much? Because we're made in the image of God. So we shouldn't lie to one another. We shouldn't cheat one another. We shouldn't steal from one another. We should commit adultery together. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's knowing Him. And committing our way to Him. And right now, the church as a whole is up against so many cultural things coming into us. But brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus has us in the palm of His hand. And if you are in union with Him, and you are holy and fully devoted to Him, don't worry about it. You just keep going with Him. He'll take care of the rest. He will. You see, here's the thing. To love God in sincerity of heart is to keep His commandments. The one who loves the Lord will know His will increasingly and will be moving in a direction marked out by the righteousness of God. You know, yesterday in Presbytery, we had a, a man transfer in to be the pastor of Mercy Pres in Dallas. And he had some, you know, some controversial kind of points in his views because you have to let your views be known. And he talked about those things. And, and I'm like, man, that's just, that's really good. When I say controversial, there'll be some in the Presbytery who are like sharks and go after, what about this? What about this? What about this? And they should. So don't think I'm, you know, being ugly about it. They should. But one of the things that I, that I realized as I'm sitting there, and I've realized over and over again in my life, is I don't know it all. I don't know it all. I mean, that man stood up there and took a grilling. I mean, you know, you take a grilling sometimes, and he was just calm and cool and collect and said what he said. And I was just like, wow, I wish I were that smart. I wish I were that calm and cool and collected. But it just shows me I don't know everything. So, so we're, we're going in that direction. We're going in that direction. We're digging in. We're learning and we're growing. And we're holding on to Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. And as we consistently walk in that way, the way that He walked, our love for Him will grow and He will bring it to maturity and completion. A couple of weeks ago in the adult Sunday school class, Tim Keller was talking about uh, Jacob and Rachel, and he said, you know, think about Jacob here. Jacob, he, he loves Rachel. He wants to bury her, and his father says, all right, good. All right, great. Uh, you can work for me for seven years, and I'll give her to you. And if you know the rest of the story, he cheated him, and he made him work another seven years. Do you think maybe some time to time to time as he was walking along that he was going, man, I've been working so hard is this woman worth it? I mean, surely love can't hold a, the, that spark that long for 14 years like that, right? 
you know, the scripture kind of points that it, he, he, you know, maybe he had some of those days. Maybe he wondered. But he kept going. We're not given insight into that. But think about it. He kept going. Because he loved her. Because he delighted in her. And he delighted that she was going to be his. Do you delight in the Lord that way? Do you long for that wedding feast that's coming? Do you long for the things, the glory of of that which we can't even describe or explain or understand or know? That's what this is a picture of. Yeah. I'll do what you say because I love you. And I'll walk in your ways because I know your ways are the right ways. I know they're the safe ways. Glory be to God. Let's pray.